The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests. Hello and welcome to Two Millennials One Podcast. This is episode eight. I'm your host, Ethan Gable. Abby's on vacation this week as it is spring break. So today I'm joined with one of my best friends on this planet, Colton Harris. How's it going? Going well. Good to have you here, Colton. Before we get started, I'd like to encourage everybody to subscribe to the podcast. We're available on every podcasting app. Go ahead and subscribe. Give us five stars. Let's get this podcast out there. Today's episode is going to be about ideas and the power and the danger of ideas. So Colton, we'll just start with you. What is your feeling on dangerous ideas or do you feel that an idea in itself can be dangerous? Yeah, ideas are dangerous. The question is, you know, <laughs> what do we do with that? A lot of things are dangerous, but that doesn't mean that they're inherently bad. So what's crazy to me is that there's this idea that because ideas are dangerous, we shouldn't talk about them. That's my initial reaction to that is like, well, sure, it's dangerous, but that's that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Oh, no, I totally understand. Like you said, there are a lot of things that are dangerous just off the top of my head. Guns are dangerous. Bears are dangerous. Running out in front of traffic, dangerous. But we we live with these things each and every day. So in the same vein, we should be able to live with ideas. But what I feel and what has propelled me to want to talk about this on this week's episode is there are some ideas in our society that are so, I don't want to say radical, but so against the norm that they are actively discouraged or shut down. Or if you're in the right part of the world, you're killed for speaking about about. And that as a human really bothers me to the point where I want to devote a podcast to it. Does that ever hit you when you're sitting there just existing, being like, man, there are some things that I just can't truly talk about? Yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, I experienced it, I think, pretty recently, in fact, which is funny because it's it's a rather innocuous or what I thought was a rather innocuous idea. And it was met with a lot of like confrontation and controversy. It's just the simple statement of not everyone deserves your respect. And <laughs> I said that and I just kind of got this cockeyed look from these two individuals, they were coworkers, and they were like, what are you talking about? Everybody deserves respect. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And so we got into this huge argument about that word and about what it means. And it got, I wouldn't say contentious at times, but it was, it was very clear that we were not able to come to an agreement. And I thought, man, this is interesting that we're talking about something safe and not not really controversial. And, and it was still met with this idea of like, whoa, we can't think that way. It's frightening. Yeah. I feel as I get older, I just realize how much is out there that is just not societally okay to talk about or think about. I have a huge anarchist streak through me, but at no point in time can I get up and have a rational conversation with anyone about anarchy. Like Everyone just shuts that down immediately. The idea is just so shamed and so looked down upon that it's not even whispered. There are other things as well. The idea that maybe there isn't a God or that the universe is just here and exists. If you utter, hey, I don't believe in God, like you're shut out. That's a weird scenario. It's just, it's a statement. It's an idea. It's a belief, but it's not accepted. Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting thing. I think that is pretty relevant. So yeah, you know, I'm a civil engineer for the municipality that I live in and I just recently became a manager. And so I've been going to a lot of these supervisory trainings, right? And I'm relatively, relative to all of the other managers, I'm, I'm pretty young. And so I go to this 
class, and the the whole thing is about perception. And this lady is from the university, and she was brought in that day for like an hour, and she taught us about how our perceptions guide the way that we sort of view people, and, and through that filter, we sometimes make assumptions that we shouldn't. And so it's like, you need to be aware of these things. And so what was so incredible to me is how groundbreaking this was for some of these like adults, these individuals that were, first of all, they're, they've been doing this job for a long time. So this is training that I would imagine they've already had. And what struck me is, is this one particular moment in the class where she put up a picture and the picture was a man of a woman. And it kind of looked like they were in a discussion and the man sort of had his hand in the air and the woman was about to say a word. And, and so uh, she just asked the class, to sort of like describe what they were seeing. Some of the descriptions were really astounding to me. It was like, well, this lady is shouting and that man is being uh, chauvinistic. And it was like these crazy assumptions about what was happening. So all of this to say like, this is the problem is I don't think that we are objective anymore. And and then what's worse is when you try to be objective about, so like you just want to discuss an idea and, and sort of think about it, you are vilified for doing that at times because it's in opposition to how someone views a thing. It's really a shame that that is the case right now. Man, that's what's shocking to me is you, I can't say I've noticed this objective truth. If that offends somebody, I could easily become vilified. And that's, that's happened. I mean, we have like a lot of examples where that's happening in the last couple of years. And that's just, that's so frightening to me. <laughs> this has happened in the past. Galileo, who was like, hey guys, I'm pretty sure the center of our universe is the sun. And the Catholic Church was like, no, the Bible says it's the earth. So they locked him up. They put him in jail. Through history, there are countless ideas. I mean, even like the founding of this country. Hey, let's have a country where uh, religious freedom and all of these things. And the British were like, are you kidding me? No, 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 no. You're going to be mine. It just feels like every time we need to express an idea, even if it's a good one, it is met with strife. It is met with the status quo. It's met with change is bad. I would think that in this day and age that just the idea would be able to exist and be talked about without being met with such fierce opposition. I feel like I know what it is. It's a general fear of change. It's the fear of losing power. Uh, for instance, like the second you bring up anarchy, that in its essence is against government. So the government, of course, is going to want to shut that talk down. It's the fear of losing power is why ideas are dangerous. How do you fix that? Is there a fix to that? Or is this just something that humans are always going to be subjected to? This is something I've been struggling with a lot lately. And it's, you know, how do you create that change in a real way? So I think you make a good point about it being the why of it, sort of the, this loss of power. But I think there's some other things to think about too. We've really forgotten, or maybe we don't know the difference between debate and dialectic. We are so polarized that, like we've said, if you mention anything that is not in line with what I think or believe, it is somehow the opposite. And that's not always true. <laughs> and in fact, I would argue that, especially in the political spectrum, it's rarely true. But we've put ourselves in these boxes that we haven't defined clearly. And then we put other people in boxes that we've just appended to them. And so whatever they say is just wrong, and I'm going to show them what is right some way. And so that's obviously like really bad. The thing that is important about this is that the power of 
love dialectic. If we both have valid points, which I think oftentimes people who are in disagreement do have valid viewpoints, if we both have, are starting from that position and agree, we can come to the conversation in an arena of like, I think this person has something to teach me and vice versa, then you can reach a point that is higher than you could have singularly from your viewpoints. And it's like, we don't understand that this is a discourse that can be productive. We compartmentalize every facet of our life to the point where, like you said, everyone's in their box and we put other people in another box. And you're right, just having a discourse, just having a conversation. I mean, it boils down to something that simple. If you can come to the table just willing to listen, you can rise above and make something happen and make forward progress. And I don't think there's any of that right now. And I don't know if there ever has truly been that. I mean, clearly we've overcome some huge hurdles as humans uh, where that had to have been the case at some point. However, we feel at a standstill. Anytime you say something, it is met with opposition. If like you're not saying something that they want to hear, it's shut down. You are the bad guy. You're the, the opposite. I know that's an aspect of humanity. Everything boils down to us versus them. Racism, politics, gender, you name it. But again, I just keep coming back and I think about how far into the future we are. I wanted to have a little more faith in our particular generation and the millennials that we could somehow not fall into those traps that you described. I'll just give you something that happened today Uh, at work. The students... About 200 of them had a walkout in support of school safety. I do not believe it was blatantly anti-gun, but that is how it was interpreted. So it split the school in half where one faction of students were having a sit-in or a stay-in in support of guns. And they're all wearing their NRA t-shirts and Trump t-shirts. And the other half are walking out. And they live streamed this video on Facebook. And the comments that were being written on this video were toxic. Absolutely toxic. Things like, I can't believe you're wasting our tax dollars. I can't believe we've raised so many libtard students. All of these very inflammatory things. And you can believe what you want about the desires and ideas of these students and the reason why they walked out. But why would you bring yourself to type a comment like that? I mean, these are like 15-year-olds, and you're, you're calling them libtards and snowflakes and that type of thing. Oh. That does not give me faith that we are ever going to emerge from this. Like, we are becoming more polarized. If you can sit down behind your computer screen and type that thing out while you're watching a bunch of children reading the names of other children that were slaughtered, I don't even know what to do with that. That's very depressing. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a whole other thing. I mean, when you throw the 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 social media aspect on things it's like ah, we just we just don't fully understand the implications of that yet i mean and and i think we're beginning to we're beginning to sort of see like oh this is really dangerous because it goes both ways right there's there needs to be a, a temperance on how you receive these things certainly how they're said i certainly could agree with you that it's not getting better <laughs> And the only way to fix this, and this goes for almost every aspect of society, I mean, there are two ways. Uh, The first way is to educate enough of the youth such that the next generation embraces the change and makes the change. That is one way to do it, but that's hard because, I mean, if you're leaving the millennials to educate this next generation, the millennials are the problem right now. We are not this cohesive group. We are the ones on social media going back and forth and getting in our boxes. The only other way to do it is it has to be a revolution. 
And I don't see any other option to improve our relations as humans. Both of those are incredibly uncomfortable because one, you're indoctrinating people. And then the other one is like a revolution, like let's overthrow the government or let's have a civil war. Or let's secede a few states from the union and make a new country. Like all of those things are very uncomfortable and tough things to do. Or somehow we rise above and coexist and converse. But how do you make that happen? Do you think that we have – because I think this easily segues if it's not the exact same point of freedom of speech. I mean essentially because I think this is maybe what we're talking about too is that we're starting to see where these discussions aren't allowed. Yeah, and this idea of banning ideas and that covers every facet of life. Just if you think about books, books that are written, words on paper, banned, because whoever's in power, whoever has the control, deems the reading of those words to be so dangerous that it cannot be allowed. The the phenomenon of banning books always boggles my mind. Yeah, they could be dangerous. Like if enough people read the right words, yeah, you could have a revolt or you could have this giant change. And I get why that is dangerous. I guess my fundamental problem is with the people in power. I guess that's what it boils down to is why are they allowed to stifle? And I mean, the only answer is because they are in power. I think if you could just reason, <laughs> maybe this is is the naive side of me talking, but it's like if you could reason with these people, they don't really disagree. And this is something, and, and maybe this is speaking on sort of a more micro scale. This is something I've been trying to practice. Being in Missouri, our, our views of the world and our ideas are very different from what is surrounding us at Times. And so I've been trying to institute ways, like I said, on a micro scale, because it's all I can manage, is how do I present my ideas or, or listen to ideas in a way that we can have that discussion? And they're usually okay with that. They're usually okay with like, let's rationalize this. Let's be reasonable. I think the problem is that that's, I guess, what I don't know how to do is how do you do that on a, on a national scale? I think you can have success. I would think that you have a huge ability as a teacher, like teaching how to have these type of discussions and why they're important. You would think that you would have that ability. <laughs> no, and I do to some extent. I'm willing to facilitate debate in a healthy manner. Granted, I'm a math teacher, but things come up. Right. Kids are shot dead. And now we want to talk about guns and the validity of owning them. And gays can marry now. And how do we feel about that as a conservative Christian town? I love those debates and those conversations and I allow them to come up. But the problem is they become toxic immediately. I can do my best to temper just the conversation, try to make it respectful and healthy the best I can. And I can attempt to teach that. Right. It's just, it's been bred in to us, I guess, collectively that it's hard to rise above that. So this is the thing that's funny to me is this idea that, that we can't talk about ideas or that we can't have a conversation where we're just, you know, we're trying to hash things out. So from the perspective of an engineer, there's actually a couple of different meanings for the word sound. Have you ever heard the phrase like, oh, that thing is sound as in like, Oh, it's firm. Absolutely. That's what discussing ideas is. You're sort of putting words out into the ether and constructing this model and finding out if it's sound. I just think it's ironic that that same word is to just hear an idea. No, that's that's true. The discussion of these quote unquote dangerous ideas can only 
benefit humanity, even if they are radical, even if they're insane. I am not a communist. I disagree with communism fundamentally. But if someone wants to talk to me about communism, I will listen to them. However, the majority of this country would not deal in communism. And that's okay. You don't have to accept it. You don't have to want to convert our democracy to a communist regime. But the fact that just mentioning communism in the United States, you're a radical. You are dangerous. As long as you aren't forcing that idea on someone else in a, a violent manner, we should be able to have uncomfortable conversation. Well, yeah, of course. And it's like, who decided they were dangerous? Like, let's take a two-ton death machine that not a lot of us really know how it works. But every morning we get in our cars, we turn them on, and we drive to work. That's a dangerous idea. You could frame a vehicle in such a way that it's like, Oh my God, let's not create that thing. And yet we have them all over and we use them. I think you begin to understand the tyranny of like, well, we can't talk about that. It's like, well, who decided that and why? <laughs> let's talk about that. You can pretty much frame everything in the lens of a dangerous idea. You're exactly right. I like that you use the word tyranny. I mean, it is tyrannical. Our society itself is somewhat tyrannical. It doesn't facilitate change. It wants everyone to be in line and just play by the rules, even though it may not be the best situation. There may be something better. It, it entraps us and it's tyrannical and it wants us to be just like it is, which comes back on us as a species. We are the ones not allowing communism to be discussed or anarchy to be discussed. We are, as a collective, deciding these are bad things, but then you have other people within that collective that are saying, no, these are good things as well. And I guess it all circles back to the divide, the people in power, the people not in power, the right, the left, the religious, the non-religious, every natural us versus them idea, it all circles back to that, it seems. There is certainly a lot of inequality. I don't think that anyone would deny that. There's there's a huge inequality gap uh, in a lot of different ways in, in terms of power, in terms of money. How do we address this? Well, we talk about it. It's like, okay, what are ways that we can spread wealth around? Well, communism had this idea that like things should be a certain way, but then right away it's like, oh, you can't, you can't do that. It's like, no, we're trying to figure out this problem. And this is a model that its idea is rooted in things that our system is not. And so let's investigate it. Is there good in it? Obviously there's bad. How has that played out in history? But whenever you take away our mechanism, I mean, it is the fundamental mechanism in which we determine things. And the idea idea that you can't do it, man, is, is something that I would, I guess I would die for and people have. So let's examine how many countries in the world have free speech as their founding principle in their constitution, which not many, right? <laughs> man, that's our, that's the one way out of this. And so this is where at every moment that I can, I try to combat when people say things or when they don't accept facts, I try to condemn that socially as respectfully as possible because it appears to be where we're losing ground. Do you hear it is what it is a lot? I am very aware of that phrase, yes. I have such an issue with this, and it's so bad that everybody at work says it now just to tease me because I get so worked up about it. But first of all, if we're talking about gravity, it's like, oh, I'd like to float away, but I can't because of gravity. It is what it is. Sure, I'm right there with you. That's You are correct. But like most of the time, we say this to some sort of social construct. Well, it is what it is. And it's like, is it though? Is that really the way that it is? Can we talk about that? Apparently, no. You can't talk about it because that's dangerous. <laughs> I think you're pointing out an apathy. That phrase is just, 
I'm going to be apathetic. It is what it is. It is what it is. It comes at me right before I've just been told I'm a millennial and I do all these crazy things like eat Tide Pods and I'm like being put into this box and, and told that it is what it is and I'm too naive to know the difference. And it's wild. I think certain individuals have hit a point in life and they're just, they're sort of broken. And that may just speak to the entire thing. Everyone probably reaches a point where it, quote unquote, is what it is. Like, this is life. I'm accepting what life has given me or what I've made of it. That's it. Do you think everyone reaches that point? Do you think it's just a matter of time? I don't think everyone does. I'm going to use myself as an example. I rarely would ever feel it is what it is. That's not a phrase that I use ever. Now, are there things I accept that I fundamentally can't change because of my scale on this earth? Yes. Would that be a time to say it is what it is? Perhaps. I don't want there to be a ton of plastic floating in the ocean. But is there some air of it is what it is to that? There is. Because I can't clean it all up. However, the things that I can directly affect by myself or with a friend or with a group of people, I would never say it is what it is. If there's something I can do to change or I can do to spread an idea, I'm not going to settle for that. And I don't think old age is going to make me feel that way. I feel like I'm going to be the 75-year-old man writing a letter to the editor about something that I think is insane. But I don't think that's the typical human response. I think that apathy just consumes some people, consumes most people. So this is where I wish I had a, a greater knowledge in evolutionary biology. Because I have this idea that the human condition is to sort of never accept that it is what it is, even knowingly so. Because, I mean, that's what hope really is. That's what faith really is, is this idea that maybe I am almost certain that this will never change, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to push against this wall anyways. And it's like, we should embrace that. But if you have the opposite mentality, if you have the idea that, well, like it is what it is and you walk away, then you you miss that opportunity. To me, I feel like that's the human condition, or at least that's the triumphant human condition. You point out a good point. People do possess that. Do you think that's being attributed to the right things? Is that pointing in the right direction, though? For instance, the triumphant will of humans, there are some of them that will go buy a lottery ticket every day, knowing full well the odds of them winning are practically zero. I feel they could use that mentality that you're describing towards better things. You got me there. Let's assume that this idea that we sort of try even when we know it could fail or, or maybe we think that we know it would fail is some sort of innate thing to being human. Then that is a situation where we have to sort of enter a different way of thinking to sort of discern a path on how to use that. Exactly like you're saying, how do, well, okay, how do we wield this power? I don't know. <laughs> you cite an interesting point. At least empirically, we do possess that relentless belief or relentless attempt to achieve something, even though we know it's fruitless or even though we know it can't happen. But you're exactly right. We, we need to harness that or we need maybe that's what we need to do as educators is let humans or guide humans to tap into that towards better things. Maybe that's where education needs to go along with things like critical thinking and problem solving. It's interesting. I think back to at least in high school, we first learned about debate. It was in English and the way that it was presented, and I'm certainly not knocking my English teacher, but the way that it was presented was it was specifically about the idea of debate. And so she gave us a list of popular controversial topics. And I remember a couple of them, like one of them was birth control. One of them was abortion. One of them was gun control. What our class decided to debate 
was birth control. I remember a good, he's one of my best friends today. He uh, picked the side that, you know, birth control is bad. It was him versus like three girls. They were on a team and they, they picked the side that was good. And so they had this discussion and well, simply put, people liked Johnny Moore. And so he, in, in effect, won the debate. He did a pretty good job of research and presenting his point. The girls, they did a good job too. But the, the point I'm making is that we didn't really discuss the outfall. Shots out of debate, shots, at, but it's since like, like you're saying, it's almost like there's this third thing of like, okay, but what does that mean? And then to introduce how we can reach greater conclusions when two people have different points of view. It's like, why wasn't that part of that discussion? Because it's too dangerous because then perhaps it, the teacher would have been forced to show validity to one side over the other. And that's like too taboo. Give me a break. So now I'm, I'm espousing this at, at 28, you know, over 10 years later. And it's like, should this be a revelation to me that I learned this just a few years ago? Or should I have been taught those things at that moment? And maybe high school isn't the place to just, but, but I don't know. I think high schoolers can probably handle that. To your question of should that happen in high school, it has to. If this is something that we want humanity to be able to do, what you and I are doing, that has to happen in high school. I think for you and I, I think what helped us reach these revelations was college and was the workplace. Those experiences and meeting new people and getting out there and that type of thing, that did that for us. The problem is you have a large majority of Americans not attending a university. You have quite a few Americans not ever having a job that allows that type of growth, if you know what I mean. That has to happen in high school. I feel like we just came to a realization of perhaps broadening and facilitating and allowing a greater discussion of ideas and compromise and growth and progress as a nation. How do you roll that out? If I go to any of my coworkers and I'm like, hey, I have this idea. Let's try to instill this in our classes, this idea of cohesive group work on issues and rising above the divide and all these things we've talked about, they're going to look at me like I'm insane. There's no way to present this in a manner that doesn't sound like hippie wishwash. So the initial reaction I have is to to strengthen our our public education system. And I think one of the ways that we do that, and, and this is going to sound like an attack, and I don't mean it to because I have a, a huge appreciation for, for teachers, but it seems to me that we need, and this isn't going to be the groundbreaking idea, because and perhaps that's out there, but I, I think this is a, a start is that we get the best of the best. And we, we're not doing that with teachers right now. And that's such a shame. I mean, the ones that are there that are good are fantastic because they're doing it knowingly so. We got to we gotta fix that system. We got to pay teachers what they're worth. We got to put them in a category that is of the upper echelon in our society. And I say this because then when you go to your colleague, and this is, again, not to speak ill of any of your colleagues, but when you go to a colleague that is perhaps more qualified than yourself, Mr. Gable, that, that they could have these discussions, it is going to be a battle over who can make the best plan for that action. Because paying, for example, paying teachers more isn't just going to get smarter people. It's going to get more experienced people. It's going to get more cultured people. It's going to get the guy who has a couple doctorates and has been around the world. These are the individuals that we want teaching our youth, especially if, if, as we've just said, this is one of your last chances to get a hold of these minds, you know.
the profession as a whole needs to be viewed better. It needs to be compensated better and it needs to attract better personnel because you're exactly right. The people that have the most to teach us and would be the most open to truly shaping the next generation are not teachers. They would never do that because they understand it's a grind. You make hardly anything. You're living paycheck to paycheck and people crap all over you day in and day out. If you change that paradigm, you're right. This doesn't become an an issue of me bringing this up at a staff meeting and getting shot down for being a hippie. It becomes like, you're right. I understand why this would benefit society. And yes, we need to start working this in with the other things that students are supposed to leave school with. Right there, man. Just raise the salary. Yeah, it's a multi-step process. You recruit better teachers with better salary. You alter education in America to better fit the needs of current society. You teach people how to talk. You teach people to get out of their box. You make people listen opposed to just babble and bloviate about their beliefs. If you can do that, they'll raise their children in that manner. And it may be a slow process, but over the course of time, maybe we will be able to have fruitful discussions about quote-unquote dangerous ideas. Yeah. Now, can I personally pull the strings to make any of that happen? I cannot, but we can put this podcast out on the internet and let this like a mind virus spread. Absolutely. And that's the thing that is so interesting, right? Is because, like I said, it's the one mechanism that we have. And that's why I feel so aggressive when people start to say, well, you can't say that. It's like, well, I can say that. I've not been disrespectful. I've not said something that was offensive. I've said something that is objectively true. And to, to, to tell me that I can't say that is it's not okay. So yeah, I think we've identified maybe a, a plan of, of how to fix the bigger problem. But this is what I say to do right now. What can we do right now? And it's that. We have to stand up. And obviously, we have to be careful. We have to choose our words carefully. And we need to listen carefully. And we need to make sure that we aren't being disrespectful and that we aren't saying things that aren't sort of backed up with evidence. And it's not to put this person down or whatever, but, but you have to combat somebody when they say, when they sort of try to stifle truth to the best that we know that it is true, at least. That is something that each listener can go do, like right now. Be a champion for truth. Be a champion for speech, the freedom of speech. That is something we can all do. Very insightful. I agree with that totally. All right. Big thanks to Colton for joining me on this edition of Two Millennials, One Podcast. It was great to have you here. We had a great conversation. Uh, I feel like people are going to listen to this and be like, what are those two dudes smoking? But I like that. I like that phenomenon. Now for our song pick of the week. My song that I recommend to everyone is called Loose Gun by Thanks. It is a, it's a jam. Colton, what do you got, man? It's kind of mainstream, but I've been into that song, uh, Let You Down by NF lately. Right on. Everyone check out those tunes. So again, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Tell all your friends. Until next time, everybody. Peace out.